All right, amen. The Lord is good, and uh, we rejoice in that. Well, if you have your Bibles, uh, open them with me. Um, just open them because we're going to be in a lot of places. So uh, maybe the first place is Luke chapter 2. Uh, Luke chapter 2. And while you're turning there, just a reminder that we're in our uh, annual sermon series on what we call our five M's. Uh, our five M's are the five objectives, if you will, uh, of this church. Uh, if you need a Bible, raise your hands. Uh, we have ushers who provide in Bibles. If anyone needs a Bible, uh, raise your hand. We'd love to give you one and have you follow along with us in the Word. There we go. Just keep them up there so they can see. Good. So our five M's are our five objectives. They all come from the book of Titus, which is kind of our, um, not ours, it's in the Bible. It's the Bible's church planting manual, uh, if you will. And so that book was really foundational to framing out uh, who we are as a church. And as we said earlier, our mission is to make disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ from the four corners of the block to the four corners of the globe. So we exist to help people know, love, and follow Jesus, whether that's right here in our neighborhood or whether that's to the nation, to the ends of the earth. And we have sort of five strategies or objectives that help us to define that, what that looks like. First of all, we want to spread the message of the gospel. Nothing happens um, that's lasting apart from the message of who Jesus is, his death for our sins, and his resurrection from the grave. Secondly, we want to show mercy to our neighbor. Not that we're saviors, because we're not. We're people who need a savior and have one in Jesus, right? Um, but because God has been merciful to us, we, we want to be like that good Samaritan, merciful to other people, made in God's image, meant to know him. And so practical, tangible acts of mercy in our neighborhood and beyond is, is part of our strategy. Number three we'll, we'll talk about today is we are church, right? And we are meant to grow in Christ. And so we want to shepherd each other to maturity. We want to shepherd each other to maturity. And Lord willing, next week we'll talk about uh, how we seek to multiply, how we seek to multiply churches and church leaders uh, around the globe. And number five is we want to send missionaries. So we'll talk about that in two weeks, Lord willing. We want to send missionaries. So the, the message of the gospel, mercy to our neighbors, maturity in Christ, multiplication of churches and leaders, and missions to the ends of the earth. Those are our five strategies. And today we come to think about maturity. Maturity. How often do you think about your maturity as a Christian? I think in 25 years of pastoral ministry, it seems like to me, and I could be wrong, that most Christians think about their maturity in, in sort of one or two times when they feel the pain of immaturity. Right? There's something that they struggle with, they keep struggling with, it's aggravating them, it's pricking the conscience. Uh, and so they, they think about their maturity uh, and, they, and they maybe lament some immaturity or some inability, right? The other time I think Christians think about their maturity is when, when they're kind of doing all the things well. They got a good season of having their quiet times, they're, they're going to church, and whatever the choir sings seems to set their hearts on fire. In fact, they think the choir's on fire because they're on fire, right? I mean, it's just, you know, they, they just life is good, and, and they feel a kind of maturity. And, and so from time to time, they have sort of thoughts about it, fleeting assessments of their maturity. 
Now, the problem with that approach is that it, it, it rides too much the up and down waves of life, right? It's, it's, kind of, it's kind of key to how am I doing circumstantially. If I'm doing poorly, if I'm noticing some sin, or if I'm noticing some weakness, et cetera, then I feel the pain of, of a kind of immaturity and I'm frustrated with myself and maybe not even kind to myself. I'm impatient with myself. Or if I'm doing well, you know, I'm like, okay, I'm doing well. I'm doing all the right things. I'm in my word. I'm praying. I'm hanging out with the saints. And if we're not careful, there can be a kind of self-righteousness that grows up with that. Right? And so that approach is sort of tied too tightly to the ups and downs of life and, and maybe tied too tightly to us. We're looking at ourselves in all of that. We're not necessarily looking at Jesus in all of that. He's not necessarily the definition of maturity and not necessarily the source of strength and growth toward maturity. And so we're going to think about maturity this morning, and as we have in the other sermons, we want to think not just about maturity, but we, and, and we want to think necessarily about strategically how we pursue it. We, we want to think about our posture. We want to think about what is the, the posture beneath this objective that helps us to sort of stand right, be in good, good form, good shape, to be able to pursue this objective. How, how do we need to be postured that we might actually grow in maturity? And to sort of chase that idea down, we've got four points this morning. For those of you who are taking notes, number one, Jesus matured. Jesus matured. And all of these things, we want to be begin not with ourselves, but begin with our God, right? We want to be God-centered in how we're thinking about these things. So number one, Jesus matured, and we'll, we'll spend the bulk of our time there. Number two, Jesus' followers should mature. Jesus' followers should mature. Number three, as we were just singing a moment ago, we must help each other mature. We must help each other mature. And then number four, I want to answer that question, what then is needed for maturity? So we come to the posture. What then is needed for maturity? So let's start with that first observation. Number one, Jesus matured. And to see that, we want to, we want to see that in two ways. And, and let me just say, beloved, I, I think this is one of the most marvelous things in the Bible. That the Son of God, who, who, who is God from the beginning, from before the beginning, eternally God, he comes into the world in our likeness, in our flesh, and though he is God, he does something that seems to us to be so ordinary that we don't mention it. He grows. He matures. It's a marvelous thing. I, I can't describe it to you. I can't explain it to you more. But he is really God. And in his humanity, he matures. And we're going to see that in two ways. Number one, he matured the way all children must mature. He matured the way all children must mature. Luke chapter 2, verses 39 and 40. These two verses are, are sandwiched between two more famous sections of, of Luke's gospel. In the, in the section previous to that, Luke is telling us about the Lord's birth and his dedication in the temple. 
the, the miracle around his incarnation and his birth, uh, the songs of Zechariah and Mary. So we get those, those beautiful passages that we normally read during Advent. And then after that, we get that sort of somewhat funny passage where um, Jesus' parents take him to Jerusalem um, for, for, the, for the holy days, and they leave town, and they didn't realize they, they left Jesus, right? They, they forgot the Messiah, <laughs> right? And, and Jesus is back in the temple instructing the religious leaders of his death. Now, these two verses are tucked right between his birth and that scene at 12 years old. And this is what the Bible says. When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, that is, they had dedicated Jesus in the temple according to the law, they returned it to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. They went home, verse 40. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now that line, and the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, uh, just a few verses later, when, when, we, when they leave him in the temple in Jerusalem, the, the Bible tells us very clearly he was 12 years old. So that line right there is covering, describing the first 12 years of Jesus' life. And those first 12 years are marked by growing, becoming strong, and being filled with wisdom. Now, the age 12 is not usually associated with wisdom, right? As the Proverbs puts it, ordinarily, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, right? Hey, man, somebody's got a 12-year-old. So we know that this wisdom that Jesus has is extraordinary wisdom. It is, in some sense, unique to Jesus, but he grew into it. He grew into it. Now, I just want to say a word to any children among us this morning. We've dismissed almost all of them. But so if you're 9, 10, 12, 15, 18, 25, all you children, <laughs> don't be frustrated because you're not old enough to do something yet. I spent most of my childhood, I can't wait till I'm 16. I can't wait till I'm 21. I can't wait till I'm this. I can't wait till I'm that. Frustrated that, that I wasn't old enough to do something. Beloved, not being old enough to do something simply means, this is all it means, you need to grow some more. You need to mature some more. Just like Jesus grew and matured, even though he's the son of God right? If Jesus grows and matures, how much more are you and I as children, as young people, as adult adolescents? We need to grow and mature too. Instead of being frustrated, I want to encourage you here. If you're a young person, I want to encourage you. Instead of being frustrated, try to gain wisdom and understanding. Commit yourself to trying to be wise and growing understanding. Because here's the thing, the wiser you become, the more you'll be able to do. And the more you'll be prepared to handle. The wiser you become, the more you'll be able to do, and the more prepared you will be to handle it. So, beloved, don't fall into the immature way of thinking that wants all the freedom it can have 
without any of the maturity to go with it. Honestly, that's not freedom. That's reckless irresponsibility. Now, the world will tell you it's freedom. The world will tell you, throw away everything that holds you back. Throw away every rule. That's freedom, doing what you want to do. Beloved, the Bible says that's the very definition of sin. Each of us going our own way. No, so instead of that, instead of casting off restraint, commit yourself to growing wise and responsible. Follow Jesus' example here and follow your parents' instructions. You know, the other thing that's crazy about the rest of that chapter in Luke chapter 2, when you go to um, that scene where they leave Jesus in Jerusalem, uh, they get almost home and figure out ain't nobody got the boy. And so we go back to Jerusalem and they look everywhere. They find Jesus in the temple um, teaching the scribes and the Pharisees. And they say, what you doing? And he's like, don't you know I had to be about my father's business? They didn't, they didn't quite understand it. You know, the next thing the text says, he went home with his parents. The son of God humbled himself, not only to grow, but to obey his parents. Because for even for Jesus, the sort of divine order of things required that we honor mother and father, right? Your mom and your dad are placed in your life by God as a source of wisdom and authority and instruction. Submit to them, honor them, obey them. And you will find yourself growing. And in your, in your growth, you will find yourself better and better prepared for true freedom. And you see here, first thing we see that Jesus matured in all the ways that, that children must mature. But here's a second way that Jesus matured. Jesus matured the way only the Savior of the world must mature. He matured the way only the Savior of the world must mature. To see that, now we're going to leave Luke 2 and go over to Hebrews chapter 5. We were reading this uh, earlier in our scripture reading, in our prayer of confession. But go over to Hebrews chapter 5 with these same lines that we use for our assurance of pardon. Notice what it says here about Jesus and about Jesus' growth and Jesus' maturity. It says in verse 7, in the days of his flesh. So now we're talking about the incarnate Jesus, right? When he comes into the world, takes upon himself human likeness. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Verse 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience. He learned obedience through what he suffered, verse 9, and being made perfect, or you may have a translation that says mature, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Now, see see what's happening here. Verse 7 puts us in the Garden of Gethsemane and on Golgotha. In Gethsemane, Our Lord was praying to the Father near his crucifixion, and he kept asking the Lord, what? Take away this cup from me. And the Bible tells us he prayed with such agony and intensity that that, uh, drops sweat of, he sweat blood. He's crying out, take this cup from me. The Lord's answer to that, the Father's answer to that, graciously, is no. 
And so then, then we're on Golgotha. We're on the, the place of the skull. We're, we're at Calvary where he is nailed to the cross and he is crying out again, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's through that suffering that our Savior learns obedience. Suffering became his professor. He took a semester-long course in obedience. Golgotha is the final exam. Will he obey the Father all the way to the cross and suffer the Father's judgment against all the sin of the world. Verses 8 and 9 explain why Gethsemane and Golgotha were necessary. Jesus had some final maturing to do. He needed to pass this final exam. Here's, here's how Paul puts it in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. And being found in, the form, in human form, he humbled himself by what? Becoming obedient. How far did he go in his obedience? To the point of death. What kind of death? Even death on a cross. So verse 9 is telling us that through the obedience, the Lord became mature or perfect as a savior of the world. He became the Lamb of God without blemish, offered for the salvation of of the world. Now get this. We are saved not through our obedience, but through Jesus's obedience. It's the obedience of another that gets credited to our account that saves us. And in this text now, in, in, in Hebrews chapter 5, the writer here is alluding to, to the two aspects of obedience or righteousness that Christian theologians write about, his passive and his active obedience. His active obedience is all the ways that he positively obeys the law of God. Jesus was sinless. He obeyed the law perfectly. He acted in a righteous way without blemish. His passive obedience is the suffering that he takes for our sin on the cross. Which means all the righteousness that you and I will ever need to please God, Jesus has provided. Actively and passively in positive obedience to the word of God in taking the punishment that the word of God said that we deserve because of our sin. In this way, the Lord Jesus Christ was perfected as a savior. In this way, as Hebrews says here, he became the source of salvation for the whole world. There is no salvation apart from him because there is no one who obeyed God like he did. And he did it for us. In it for us, beloved. We disobeyed God. We ran from God. We broke his law. We even reject the idea sometimes that we should be punished for it. So rebellious are we. Because of that, we deserve God's judgment. But God, being rich in love, sent his son. And as the text says here, even though he was a son, 
the unique son of God. He set that aside to suffer for us, to die for us, to pay the penalty for us, and to bring to us righteousness and eternal life through faith in him. If you're here this morning and this sounds like good news to you, it's because it is. It is the best news. It is the best news. There is a way to be reconciled with God. There is a way to have a relationship with God. There's a way to be righteous in front of a holy God. And that way, Jesus has provided. No wonder he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And this is what we want you to know. That's good news. That's an invitation. It's not like Jesus is standing like a bouncer at the door, keeping everybody out. No, 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 no. He kicks the door open. He says, come in. Come into the salvation that God has purchased for you. Come into this righteousness that I have purchased for you. Come to this forgiveness that you so desperately need. Come to eternal life. The door is wide open. And if they ask you who sent you, tell them Jesus. So this morning, beloved, if you, if you want to be rescued from God's judgment against the world because of sin, and you want to know God, and fellowship with him. Confess your sins to God. Admit them that they are sins and they're wrong and you deserve judgment. And put your faith in Jesus. Claim before God that what Jesus did for you really is for you. That his righteousness really is for you. That his death to pay the penalty of your sins really is for you. That his resurrection in eternal life really is for you. That God did that for you. That you are trusting God to keep his word. That anyone who puts their faith in him will be saved. And you will be saved, beloved. And what a marvelous salvation it is. Jesus matured so that he could save you. So that he could be the perfect sacrifice for you. And so that through faith in him, you and I would have eternal life with God the Father. Beloved, don't, don't think about anything else. Don't do anything else until you put your faith in this Jesus. Call upon the name of the Lord while you may be saved. Jesus matured. He gives us a model. Whether we are children learning to grow in the care of our parents and it becomes for us a savior when we need desperately because of our sin, because we have a God who matured, who in his incarnation matured, it comes to our second point, this really just follows from the first, his followers should be people who mature. It seems rather obvious. Well, think about it this way. How important and holy is growth if our Lord had to do it? Whether it's the growth of childhood or the unique maturity gained through suffering, Jesus experienced it all and thereby sanctifies it all. It makes it holy. All genuine growth is holy. So we shouldn't be surprised that as Christians, we are then called and commanded to grow. Yes, Jesus is God's unique son, but we are God's sons and daughters through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and as God's children, just like Jesus, we, we are meant to learn obedience and to mature into the likeness of Christ. 
Now, we see this in several ways in the scripture. I'm going to give you some passages. You can look them up with me or you can write them down. But several places where we're taught that we should mature in Christ, Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, Jesus tells another famous story called the parable of the sower. There's this guy who goes walking and he's scattering seed as he walks and the seed falls on different kinds of ground. It, it, it falls on a path that people walk on all the time. It, it, it falls among thorns and thistles. Uh, it falls in good soil, etc. Luke 8 verse 14. Luke 8 verse 14. Notice what Jesus says in the middle of this parable. He's explaining the story to his disciples. And part of what he says is this. And as for what fell among the thorns... They are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. See what he's saying? That the cares and riches and pleasures of life will choke out the word of God in the life of those who hear it and prevent their growth to maturity. So this is a, a negative outcome we, we want to avoid. And he explains a little bit later that the good soil, uh, uh, a heart that receives the word in faith, that good soil produces fruit. One version of this produces fruit 30, 60, or 100 times. Now, this parable is telling us that essential to growth is a heart that receives God's word and receives it in a certain condition, not, not sort of uh, trampled on and neglected and stolen by the enemy, not choked out by the cares of this world, but receives it in a, in a good soil, a good heart that nurtures it and waters it and gives it a place to germinate and grow. And when God's word grows in our heart, it produces, produces fruit, it produces maturity. So if you're the note-taking type, just write this one word down, heart, heart. Now, another passage that speaks to maturity is 1 Corinthians 14, verse 20. So in, in Luke, Jesus makes the point, as he so often does, in a story. In Paul's letters, he, he makes the point, as he so often does, with, with prose, with just straight words. He says in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 20, brothers, do not be children in your thinking, be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature, right? So if you're, if you're writing words now, you wrote heart, now write head, right? Head. So maturity aims not just at the heart, but also the head. Paul says here that there's thinking that is mature and there's thinking that is immature. So that uh, immature thinking, that childlike thinking, uh, it, it, kind of, it kind of suckles on evil. It suckles on worldliness. This is why Paul says in, in, in chapter 12 of Romans, right, that we need our minds renewed, no longer conformed to the pattern of this world, but renewed according to the word of God. If we're going to be mature, we're going to have to be thinking Christians. Let me say that again now. If we're going to be mature, we're going to have to be thinking Christians. There's no other way to maturity except that our head be as engaged as our hearts are. And one of the ways you can identify immaturity in a Christian or a Christian church is anytime you see people who are all about feeling and seem to disdain thinking, they're headed toward immaturity. Or the opposite, 
Anytime you see egghead Christians who are only about thinking but are scared to feel anything, they're headed toward immaturity because they are, they are cutting apart what God means to be whole, head and heart. There's other ways you can spot immature Christians today. You find a Christian who's easily offended by the truth? Probably an immature Christian, immature in their thinking. You find a Christian who seems to blend their politics with their religion and not know where the one starts and the other ends? Probably an immature Christian. And again, that Christian who seems to think that thinking doesn't matter at all is doomed to be an immature Christian. So if you're here and you're thinking about Christianity, you're doing the right thing. Think about it. Think about it. Contrary to the stereotype of Christians, God does not require us to check our mind when we come in the door. He, in fact, does the opposite. He says we are to love him with all of our mind. Or how are you going to do that if you left that outside? So if you're here and you're thinking about Christianity and, and maybe you've fallen prey to that stereotype that Christians aren't thinking people, beloved, they're in this room, PhDs and MDDs and all other kinds of Ds and Es and Ps. And in this room are people with no degrees who know this book and who know how to live for Jesus, who think hard about it. You might be surprised if you would just take a moment to talk to us and think with us, you might be surprised that we have entered a deeper thinking pool than you even thought was possible. Because these are spiritual truths discerned spiritually. So we're meant to think. We're meant to bring our word, our head to the book. Now, here's another thing. Third word to write down, hands. Hands. Back to Hebrews chapter 5. We read it earlier in the service. I want to read it for us again. And I want to pay particular attention to verse 14, Hebrews 5, beginning in verse 11. This is about this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. So these folks won't hear, they won't listen, and they're not growing. Verse 12, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. So they, they're repeating kindergarten. They fail kindergarten. You need milk, not solid food. Why? For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child, verse 14. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. You see what he's saying there? Here's the difference between the, the immature and the mature. It's not only a matter of milk and meat, but notice what they do with God's word. The mature go on and habitually apply God's word, right? By, by, by discernment, they are trained in the application of God's word to distinguish good from evil. And the implication here is they choose the good, right? So there's no way to be mature without applying God's word without living God's word, without, without it sort of affecting what our hands do in the making of distinction between good and evil and in choosing the good. So maturity, beloved, is going to require, as we follow Jesus, that we do so with head, heart, and hands. 
with head, heart, and hands shaped and guided by God's Word. With head, heart, and hands that are fueled by God's Word and motivated by, by God's Word. That are, yes, limited and instructed by God's Word. That's got to be in here, in here, and coming out of here. Head, heart, and hands. And so here's the question for application. Is there a place in the connection of those three, head, heart, and hands, where the chain is broken for you? Right? Does it all get in the head but never seem to inflame your heart and come out of your hands? Or, or, or maybe it all gets in the heart but you don't, you don't think about it much. And you find yourself the stuff that you do with your hands driven by emotion, but not the word. Or maybe you're one of those doing Christians. All I want to do is do, do, do. Right? Praise God for doing. But is your heart right? And are you thinking about it rightly? Is there some place where those things aren't joined for us? Where do we need to ask God for grace? With our thought life, our our heart life or the application? Where do we need a strength? I encourage you this week, as I will be this week, to pray and ask the Lord to show us where there might be misfires and, and misconnections and to give us grace in whichever area we need it. To help us and to protect us and to guide us. We, we live in a highly seductive world, beloved. There's seductive thought out there that looks good and sounds good. Paul says in, in Colossians 2, fine-sounding arguments, plausible words, but aren't right. There are things we feel that feel so right and so powerful and hit us instantly. If we don't stop to think about it, we'll act on it and only then discover how partial or wrong our feelings were. It's a seductive world, and there, there are things to give your lives to that might be good things, but they may not be the best things, may not be what God sent you to do. And so let's spend some time this week just asking the Lord to help us with our, our head, our hearts, and our hands that we might mature as Christians the way God has called us to, which means to our third thing. So how do we help each other in this? Real quickly, I want to give us three things. Number one, by preaching, not just the pulpit preaching, but the way we preach to each other, the way we speak to each other. Remember the call to worship, Colossians 1, verse 28, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. If maturity is our goal, then preaching must be part of our strategy. Hearing preaching, considering preaching, thinking through the preached word, applying the preached word, right? I love that we're a note-taking church. But I wonder how many of us have bulletins stacked up somewhere at home with notes that we never go back to. Maybe one or two of us, or 10 or 20 of us. Right? We want to take that preaching and take it in and take, more importantly, the word of God itself in. And we want to share it and apply it. We want to preach to each other. Okay? Some of us are going to watch the game this afternoon. The halftime show is garbage. Turn the volume down and ask important, meaningful, spiritual questions. 
In fact, do that over the commentary too. God throws a touchdown, get excited. What excites you about the Lord these days? It's always a good time to talk about Jesus. Yeah. So let's preach to each other. Number two, let's pray. We mature by praying. So preaching for the head, praying for the hearts, hearts Colossians 4.12. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. Why? That you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. We should be praying for each other's maturity and praying for each other's assurance in the faith, that we know that we are saved and that we take our stand on Christ and his finished work and that we grow into the likeness of Christ. Let's pray for each other. Our sister exhorted us during the, during the song, we talk about, I pray for you, you pray for me. And she made reference to praying through the directory. Great way to pray for each other. If you pray through the directory, you, you won't miss a member. You pray for every member. Six names on a page. I recommend one page a day. Just six names. Surely we can pray for six of our brothers and sisters as we pray through the directory. Five on the day when you're on that page, right? Let's just pray for each other and pray for our maturity and pray that we would stand fully assured. Number three, so we mature by preaching, by praying, and by working. Ephesians 4, 11 through 14, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Well, well, why? Why do the work of ministry? Why volunteer for children's ministry? Why volunteer for the choir? Why go out on Mondays and share the gospel in the community? Why, why do any of these things? Verse 13 tells us, or verse 12 tells us, for the building up of the body of Christ, Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. You see what he's saying? So part of what we're doing here is hearing God's word, equipping each other, small groups, um, Thursday night Bible study, one-on-one -on -one Bible reading and fellowship. We're doing all this equipping for the work of the ministry so that we all grow up into Jesus, into the likeness of Jesus. So how's our participation in those three things, in the preaching and the praying and the working life of the church? If you want to mature, then we ought to commit ourselves to that. Now, brings us number four to our last thing. What do we need then to mature? What posture do we need to mature? So if you've been coming along in this series, you know that we, we talked in our first sermon uh, about a posture of sentness uh, being essential to spreading the message of the gospel. And last week we were talking about showing mercy and um, we talked about a, an incarnational posture as essential to being present with people and serving and caring for and receiving the care of others uh, in need, right? Well, what, what posture do we need to mature? Well, in one word, humility. Humility. If maturity requires growth, and growth is kind of a grade. It's kind of an assessment, 
right? If we see a place that we need to grow, as my sister was saying before, that means we recognize a gap between where we are and where we want to be or hope to be, right? Now, the, the one thing you need that I need, we all need to rightly define that gap and to understand that gap is humility, right? So if we're proud and pride can work multiple directions, if we're the kind of pride that boasts in itself and boasts in its perfections, we'll perceive that gap as smaller than it is or parts of it as insignificant. Or if we're the kind of pride that kind of wallows in self-pity, we don't tend to think of that as pride usually, but it is, it's, it's, it's focused on itself too much. If we're the kind of pride that wallows in self-pity, then we will, we will magnify the gap right? And, and we will catastrophize every time we think about the gap, right? Every time we think about the gap, oh, the world is blowing up, right? What we need is not pride, but humility, which gives us an accurate assessment of the gap and an accurate heart and attitude toward the gap. And that's precisely what we find committed in the scripture. So Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 8, you guys will know these words. If you're familiar with Philippians, um, Paul writes there, have, have this mind among yourselves. So think this way, right? So, so maturity requires thinking. Have this mind among yourselves. We have to share this way of thinking. And we already have this mind, which is yours in Christ Jesus, Paul says, right? So have this mind together, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or jealously held on to. Verse 7 but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he what? Humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So connected to Jesus's suffering and growth and maturity is Jesus's humility. Connected to our growth then, it's going to be humility. Next chapter in Philippians, Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 to 15, Paul writes this, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. So now he's recognizing the gap, right? He ain't, I ain't there yet. I haven't attained it. I'm not already perfect, or that word perfect could also be translated mature. But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Right? Paul's like, I'm pressing toward this goal because Christ has already claimed me right? I'm his. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. I ain't got it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, so I'm not wallowing over here in self-pity. I'm not chained to my history. I'm not acting like I can't escape it. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. There's a goal out there. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And then he says this in verse 15, let those of us who are mature think this way. Let those of us who are mature think this way. I am not imprisoned to my past. I'm leaving that behind. The past life of sin, the past life of rebellion, the past life of failure, the past life of despondency, I'm leaving that behind. There's a goal out there in front of me, and I'm going to press toward that. I'm going to press toward I ain't got it yet. I ain't there yet. But this one thing I do, I press toward it. I push toward it. I march toward it. I crawl toward it. If I have to do, I will, I will claw toward it. 
this one goal, this upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Church, think that way. But thinking that way requires humility. I ain't there yet. So, 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 if, if we're honest about that, you don't have to pretend when you come. Because I ain't there yet. No, brother, I didn't pray for you this week. I know I said I would, but I didn't. And I heard them say pray through the directory. And, and when I was in there, I said I'm going to do it. But, bro, I ain't do it. I ain't there yet. Yes, this, I saw your text. I saw your email. I know you needed help. And I didn't show up. The Christian thing to do, if I were more like Jesus, I would have been there. But I, I didn't. Brother, I know I owe you love. Bible says to owe no man nothing but to love one another. And this would be the loving thing to do. I haven't arrived. <laughs> I haven't arrived. If, if we embrace this, we'd show up acknowledging, I haven't obtained yet. I haven't obtained yet. And, that, and that's, that's just what maturity sounds like. That's how it talks. But see, we've been trained in churchianity that maturity is to look like you got it all together. We've been trained in churchianity that immaturity is never admitting you got any problems, right? In fact, in churchianity, even if you got problems, you make them somebody else's problem. They did this or they did that or what have you. You know, you look for ways to kind of delegate your own stuff. That's churchianity, not Christianity. Christianity says, come all ye who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I am meek and lowly at heart. He's humble. He's humble. And we should be humble. Let's end this way. I think part of what humility means here, if I'm going to give you some different words, is that all of us should have a growth mindset. All of us should have a growth mindset. I talk about this with, with our basketball team because sometimes a kid who's just been playing two years, just learned how to dribble, think he's Steph Curry. You know, he want to do jump, step backs, and, you know, it's like, bro, travel, travel. <laughs> two steps, man. And, and you start to coach him, and they start pushing back. I, I can do this. I can do that. I can. So, wait a minute, man. We, we're in practice. This is the laboratory. This is where you come to experiment. This is where you come to make mistakes so that you can learn. You, you need a growth mindset. Don't be upset because you missed a shot. You're going to miss a lot more shots than you make. Keep taking the shot. Keep working on the shot until the shot becomes natural, till you get your form right, till it starts to fall more often. But guess what? You're always going to miss more shots than you make. Even the highest paid pros are going to miss more shots than they make. Well, how did they become the highest paid pros? Not by making every shot, but by having a growth mindset. I have a growth mindset. I'm going to practice. I'm going to work. I'm going to experiment. I'm going to fail. I'm going to practice. I'm going to work. I'm going to experiment. I'm going to fail. I'm going to stay at it until I mature as a player or I mature as a Christian. And so growth is good. Growth is holy. All kinds of growth. And so we want to commit ourselves to a growth mindset. And let me, let me give you one more thing that go with this. You probably, have probably heard this in other kinds of contexts. It comes from a book called Atomic Habits, which I would highly recommend. Um, set as your goal to get sort of one area where you want to grow 
and to get 1% better each day. Just 1% better. So we're not going to grow like, you know, I'm the beating on Sunday, and I'm going to look just like Jesus on Monday. That ain't how that works. I'm going to always be looking like the beating, making like 1% progress into looking like Jesus. And in a long accumulation of days, I might not make any more than 1% progress, but it's progress. And on that final day when Jesus comes and I see him, I'm going to get an A plus and I'm going to be transformed into his image and his likeness. You see, it's not even our progress that transforms us. It's his coming again that transforms us. Our progress is simply our pressing toward the mark, our yearning for this calling, our desire to be with Jesus. We keep measure of the progress because we don't want the desire to grow cold, not because we trust the progress. Right? We keep measure of the progress because we want to keep a warm heart for Jesus, right? And we want to be ready when he comes. And so we keep pressing toward the mark. We keep leaning toward glory 1% a day. And then when he comes on that day, it's all glory all the time. So let me give you some things on this notion of a growth mindset. Six or seven things to ask ourselves. I'm just going to list them for you. You choose the question that you want to sit with. The Holy Spirit kind of nudges you uh, or plucks you in the back of the head. Listen to the Holy Spirit. Number one, are we humble enough to ask others how they're doing without assuming we know or we have the answer? That's an interesting question in this sense that, again, we don't want to slip into just thinking about ourselves. But humility count others as significant as we are, right? So are we humble enough to ask others how they're doing and then just be humble enough to listen and not, not, not sort of put the pressure on ourselves to have an answer to fix their problem? We're not Jesus, right? And, and, and not assuming that we have to know the answer. We just have to be humble enough to be interested. Are we humble enough to ask? Number two. Thinking now about our mission in the neighborhood, are we humble enough to ask our neighbors to tell us about the community and not to assume the stereotypes? Right? Are we humble enough to get to know our neighbors wherever we live? PG County, Arlington, Southeast DC, Northeast DC, Northwest DC, wherever. And to let them tell us about their neighborhood and their experience of it, to learn from them to close the gap in our knowledge about our block, not by stuff that we just thinking in our own heads, but by stuff that we're learning from people who've been living here longer than we have. Number three, are we humble enough to repent of sin and accept God's grace? Whether we are not yet Christians and are repenting for the first time or whether we've been walking with Jesus for years. <laughs> you know, one writer said, um, repentance is just humility. I think that's right. Number four, are we humble enough to obey God's word for what it is, the very word of God? Are we humble enough to obey God's word, especially where it's costly? I love Ezra 7.10. 
Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. That's what made him a great leader in the rebuilding of that nation. He had set his heart to study the word of God and to do it. Number five, are we humble enough to serve others without needing applause? Are we humble enough to serve others without needing applause? We made reference to this one earlier. Number six, are we humble enough to consider the needs of others as important as your own? Are we humble enough to consider the needs of others as important as my own? Number seven, are we humble enough to take personal responsibility for our own spiritual lives without blame shifting and excuse making? Are we humble enough to take personal responsibility for our own spiritual lives without blame shifting and excuse making? If we're humble, we'll have a growth mindset. And in that mindset and in that humility, it won't be about comparing ourselves to others or pulling others down or anything of that sort. It'll just be about there's a gap between me and Jesus. Lord, won't you close it? 1% a day, won't you close it? Because I'm yearning for that day when you come and I'm transformed to be just like you. Let's shepherd each other to maturity. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do confess that we are not always as humble as we ought to be. And we confess that we're not always aware of when we're proud so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would enlighten our hearts and our minds, that we might see ourselves accurately, that we would not be puffed up in arrogance, missing the ways in which we have not yet obtained, and we would not, Lord, be dragged down in a, another form of pride that keeps us tied to the past rather than freed by your grace. Lord, help us to forget what lies behind and help us to press toward the mark, toward the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Pull us heavenward, we pray. And in doing so, make us a little bit more like Jesus each day and help us to shepherd each other each day in prayer and preaching and the work that you've given us in the ministry that we might all grow into the likeness of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.